Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis, everybody. So this week, my guests are Mari Albertson, who's the Deputy Director of the Division of Housing and Community Development, and Austin Harrison, who is a research fellow at Innovate Memphis. Today, we're going to be talking about a report that was put out late last year called The State of Memphis Housing, Rising to Respond to Crisis. You know, this report sounds kind of, I mean, the topic sounds kind of dry, I guess, for people outside the affordable housing industry. But one of the things that really struck me about it is, you know, I've read a lot of affordable housing reports over the years, including some put out by your office, Mari. And a lot of times they're, you know, they're uh, constrained by what the U.S. Department of Housing and Community Development wants you to report. And they're not something that you would necessarily read for fun. Um, This report was different. It was really interesting and timely. And it's come up in a couple previous uh, interviews I've done. So it seemed like we we should go back and talk about it. So Mari, starting with you, like why this report and why now? Well, um, over, you know, the recent years, we've really been working to be more data driven and our efforts as HCD to understand um, the affordable housing needs in the community and to use that to develop the strategies that respond to those specific needs. And we wanted that for our whole team, you know, to be considered, you know, experts in this area. But then we also wanted to make the expertise more accessible to the public by having a comprehensive but a reader-friendly source of facts and data related to these different housing and neighborhood conditions in Memphis. So graphically great. It's the information is very concise, but it's, you know, it's it's what we need to know. And I think this report allows us to all start at the same place when we're considering the outcomes that we want to see as a community. So not just internally, but for our partners and for the public as well. So, you know, it's our hope that this data will be used to establish how we expand on um, our affordable housing supply and prevent further loss due to disinvestment. So those goals specifically. So I was looking at, as Austin, before I move on, is there anything you want to say about the, you know, the port, why it was done and anything like that? I think the only thing I'd add, uh, I'm echoing everything Mari said. I, I just think it's it's so important, and I think this is you know why why the report you know housing is is an issue and in, in neighborhood um, quality of life are issues that impact so much of our lived experience and so many Memphians. And I think uh, you know to the point of that you both are making, it has a, a sense in the in the past to be a little insular in terms of. Uh, just focusing on housing and community development experts. And I think the the pandemic in the current moment is reminding us that housing instability and uh, the inability to have, you know, safe, warm and dry shelter is is a big issue and leads to health impacts, leads to education outcomes, um, where you can get work to, to make ends meet. I mean, uh, it's such a, it's sort of a platform, you know, if we think of housing as a platform for our lived experience in our life in the city, 
um, it's it's important for other people that aren't in the housing field directly to be able to uh, engage in those conversations and for the for the summit to have sort of a, a nexus point or just a, a, a sort of you know reading from the same hymnal as we'd say on Sunday mornings right just kind of so that we can have these discussions um, around these really important topics now more than ever uh, but really just I know this has been a priority as, as Martin mentioned this has been a priority of the cities for years now. And, and I think it's, uh, it's a, you know, a five, 10 year overnight success, right? It's been a long time coming. Well, I, I, uh, I'm all in favor of uh, broadening the audience for this message and making it more accessible because I've been a part of a lot of conversations over the years about how you, for example, engage the corporate community in affordable housing and neighborhood revitalization and I think a lot of people in the community, I'm generalizing here, you know, they've heard of Habitat, which of course does great work, but that's kind of it. You know, maybe in their job, they did a Habitat build. And of course, people know generally about the issue, but they don't know the whole system and the systemic issues. So, um, so I think it's great. I'm sure we're just scratching the surface in terms of, getting that message out, but I'm a thousand percent in favor of it. So I was looking at it last night, um, just sort of in preparation for this discussion. Uh, I realized that, of course, it was really published several months ago, and a lot of the report has to do with, you know, COVID and and the impact that's going to have on affordable housing and neighborhoods. And then, you know, lessons learned from the the mid-2000s financial crisis and sort of connecting those two. But I guess for both of you, I mean, you know, the ink was dry on this, you know, several months ago, but of course a, a lot has changed or, or there's just things we did when this was report, we didn't know how COVID exactly would play out. We had an idea. So what are your, you know, reflections on what's changed, what hasn't changed, I'm rambling as usual, but starting with you, Mari. I mean, I think the impacts to housing have not been unexpected. They really just brought to light existing issues that, you know, exist in our community, such as, you know, really just housing stability in general. So while some of them, it, it you know, takes a while to really realize the the impact on, you know, it's the healthy housing, you know, including things like weatherization, those have been significant issues for a long time, but, you know, healthy housing conditions in homes where people are now having to spend more time, their, you know, homes or school and work and everything else and um, significant issues. But also, you know, the, the report talks to this, but the evictions, you know, have been a, a huge issue for our community as well as homelessness. I mean, we have a lot of people working in these areas, but, you know, given the the number of people impacted in different ways by the pandemic, you know, it wasn't unexpected that these became larger issues. And, you know, there's things in place like the rent moratoriums or the eviction moratoriums and, and other things, but those won't last forever. So, um, you know, those definitely have, have been the issues that we we anticipated. I want to go to you, Austin, but um, I mean, I've been really impressed by, you know, how some organ how some people have responded. Like, what's the organization that built the facility for people, homeless people that are rehabbing from the hospital? Room in the Inn. 
Yes. I mean, a huge need. And, um, you know, COVID just for, for the homeless um, world, I mean, COVID just layered on a whole new set of complications. So Austin, what about you? Um, I guess going back to my question about, um, about, as, as kind of the, you know, the author or one of the authors of the report, mm-hmm. sort of going back and thinking um, what the report said and what you what we now know about COVID and um, other things that have changed that you didn't see coming or things that are even more so. Yeah, I think one thing that sort of caught me off guard, and I think a lot of folks who are look closely at the housing dynamics in COVID, is just how the market has continued to elevate in certain neighborhoods. I mean, um, everything that you know, Mari's mentioning with these systemic issues being exacerbated, like that is happening. But at the same exact time, unlike you know the mid two thousands and two thousand eight, we have neighborhoods that are seeing four or five times uh, market growth. I mean, you could buy a house for you know twenty percent of what you could what you're buying houses now, and I think that's a national phenomenon. And there's a lot of theories out there for for what is causing that. But uh, that and that was happening when we wrote the report. But I think a lot of people then, as they are now, are sort of writing that off as something that can't really last. But yet we continue to see the market um, produce that and, and sales are, are happening. Um, and so, you know, we have this eviction crisis. We have um, this, this, these, this hyper vacancy and concentrated disinvestment in certain neighborhoods. But at the same time, we also have some neighborhoods, you know, like Binghampton, like Orange Mound that are seeing you know, medical district that are seeing uh, five or six times uh, price values. And, 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 the, and I think this year in 2021, with the reappraisal coming, are when homeowners are going to really begin to feel that and feel that their property taxes might end up being a lot higher than they were. And so I think how we do that when we begin to continue to see some of the social and economic impacts of the pandemic is just yet another, you know, kind of layer. And it's really, it's hard to, as we were talking about before the show, it's really hard to hold all this in tension and, and keep this all um, in, in the same report, right? And, and in the same, same idea that, uh, that we are seeing, you know, the housing prices go up while all this other stuff's going on. Well, let's drill down a little bit more on that. I mean, um, it's frequently said, and I sure am a person who I'm sure has said this a lot over the years, is that there's plenty of affordable housing in Memphis, cheap housing, but the condition of it is just poor. Affordable, and I always say affordable housing, um, not necessarily HUD sponsored housing, not government necessarily government incentivized housing, but just a people housing that low and moderate income people can afford. You know, I've always kind of believed that, and but that's but but the supply is diminishing and both sides of the market. So, and I've been amazed honestly by the continuing to see you know new multifamily going up in certainly in my neighborhood midtown that is um for sure having an impact on the affordability of midtown for you know students and restaurant workers and and those projects have just continued to chug along i think part of it is that we didn't have we didn't have a moratorium on construction work so those projects but even new things breaking ground it's just chugging along and same thing in Binghampton. and um so austin i know you talked about this a little more but say a little more about that about that sort of that you know that 
I guess you the top of the affordable housing market price wise and how that's really taking units offline. Yeah, and and if if I can, I want to give a little bit of background. I don't want to turn this into a housing one on one class, but 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 I think it's important because I, I certainly didn't know this before I got into the field. Um, when we think of and I, and I don't, there aren't really good names for any of this, but I'm going to use a a, a a name and some terminology that I've heard you use, Emily, that really made sense to me at the time. If we think of capital A affordable and lowercase a affordable, right? So capital A affordable is what we'll call government subsidy. This is tax credits. This is you know pilots. These are the government is you know working with a developer to make this affordable. Lowercase a affordable is what most of the market is. So what a lot of people don't know is just about one in five people that are eligible for that capital A affordable housing that have an income that meets that um, can actually find a place. And so that's why the city has been really in the ACD and Mari's group has been really intentional to say we can only solve so much of this. We need other we need help. We, we need to work together with CDCs, with private actors, because the, the city and government in general, federal government, too, only controls a really small portion of the overall places where low to moderate income families and working class families are living in Memphis, the majority of them are doing that on the private market. And so if we think about the ways the lowercase a affordable uh, leaves the and becomes unaffordable, it's going to be from, like you're saying, this top of market and bottom of market. And up until you know the last few years, um, Memphis has predominantly ha- have been uh, a lowercase a affordable town. And, and if we've lost uh, units, if we've lost those lowercase a units, they've been at the bottom of the market and they've been because of eviction, disinvestment, um, you know, vacancies, just basically signals being sent from the neighborhood that, you know, this is, this is not, um, you know, th- this, this is a place where you, where you may not want to stay long-term, right. And, and, and you can't get equity, you know, you can't build wealth in, in a, in a house because of that appraisal gap that we talk a lot about. Um, and so all that background to say, I think, you know, now we're beginning at the same time to have that top of market, um, the, the top of market reality, and, and it's and it's even occurring during the pandemic. I mean, not, uh, many people are familiar. Many people are familiar with the um, with the terrible, you know, transaction of events that occurred in the Binghamton neighborhood, right behind the Sonic on Poplar, where we had an out of town. And this is sort of a perfect example of what top of market displacement looks like, right? We had an out of town investor sight on scene buy a really big multifamily apartment. And and, it, and people, you know, many refugee and immigrant families were renting for four fifty, five hundred a month. They come in and say we want nine hundred, and if you can't make nine hundred happen, here's your eviction notice. And they do that for the entire complex. You know, many many families were immediately impacted overnight. And this was June, July. This is around we write in the report. You know, in the middle of the pandemic. And and so I think that is sort of you know what top of market looks like. The owners and renters and and then for homeowners, you know, their taxes going up. And if your tax, if you're on a fixed income, especially if you're a legacy resident or older um, uh, resident of these neighborhoods, you know, you, you're on a fixed income. And if your property taxes go up five or six times what they were the year before in a reappraisal year, you know, that that could be difficult to to pay those taxes and, and keep that property. And so I think, yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a I think that's a big big piece on the top of market and what it looks like with top of market displacement. Well, and hold that thought for a second, because I just want, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM, and I'm talking to Mari Albertson, who's the Deputy Director of the Division of Housing Community Development, and Austin Harrison, who's a Research Fellow at Innovate Memphis, and we're talking about the state of affordable housing in Memphis. So, and the thing about that example Austin, you mentioned, which is particularly egregious, is that there's a limit to what government can do. I mean, government doesn't really have any power to regulate that. I know in the case of housing community development is you all reached out 
to the owners to try to, you know, forestall some of the evictions or, and the owners weren't interested. And you didn't, like I said, you didn't even have any authority over that. That was something that was just, I think, brought to your attention and is critical, but that's a great example. And, but let's, before we talk, so let's actually just for people, let's name some neighborhoods um, like Binghamton's an example of a neighborhood where, you know, prices are starting to go up and there's been a loss of affordable housing units. Um, what are some, I just want to give people places um, in their minds where that's happened. I, w- I would say certainly, you know, parts of Midtown, like parts of VECA that were very inexpensive, the Savalentine, Ivergreen, you know, the northern part of VECA, which was had a lot of very affordable homes, that's becoming pricey, maybe Glenview, parts of Cooper Dunk. But are those ex- good examples of neighborhoods that where we're seeing this? Yeah, yeah, I, I think they are. And I would add to that, you know, uh, where I live in the Speedway Terrace, uh, kind of west across town, um, I like to say right around the corner from Cozy Corner, uh, that that uh, that neighborhood, you know, is, um, is, is similar. I, I think what we're really seeing is the edges of where the market was really strong. So, you know, VECA, like south of that area was doing really well. Before the pandemic, if you crossed the I-40 interstate in our neighborhood, closer to across town, that was already kind of going up. And I think, you know, we're just beginning to push uh, the edges because projects are penciling out, you know, as we mentioned before, that wouldn't, that weren't going to to make ends meet financially. Uh, now the values in, are, are happening. And in my neighborhood, we've seen our housing values go up six times, uh, five or six times what they were as, as recent as a year or two ago. Um, and, and so I think that's generally on the edges of those, those hotter markets is where we're seeing that. And where are the neighbor? Where are some examples of neighborhoods that you would sort of call? I hate to call them the bottom of the market, but I guess the bottom of the real estate market, where blight, vacancy, dilapidation is also taking units out of um, out of availability. Yeah, I, I think that that would definitely um, be you know uh, North and South Memphis are are concentrated areas where um, you're you know in, in in these areas you know it's 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 important to note. That again, the 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 sort of the contradictory nature of this is that you could have, and and I think South Memphis is a really good example. You know, you have a Glenview where the the neighborhood's going, and it's beginning to become right next to uh, Soldville and South Memphis, which are you know areas where you see the highest numbers of, of vacancy and disinvestment, and same on North Memphis. But I, another thing that is occurring too is where um, where these out of town investors are buying. We talk about this a lot in the report sort of outside the 240 loop. So North and South Memphis are, I think, um, areas that have, have seen that hyper vacancy for a while. But I think it'll be interesting to see how sort of what we consider like our suburbs, and they're still the city of Memphis, but more suburban type neighborhoods, such as Frazier, such as Whitehaven, Cordova is another, Hickory Hill. Like these are all areas that I think are, um, they saw tons of foreclosures. They saw tons of uh, outside investment buy up these properties and in, in our you know Wall Street backed private equity groups with offices in New York City that are owning thousands of properties in Memphis and and I think that is going to end up having you know we've seen in the research that's this phenomenon called milking right where a private equity person comes in and and, and gets as much um, assets out of that as they can and get and gets as much rent capital as they can and then they then, then they move on and I think you know when when they move on that usually turns into a dilapidated or vacant or condemned property. And, and so I, I, I think that geography is going to change. You know, I, I think um, definitely concentrate North and South Memphis, but I'd, I'd anticipate that it probably begins to change here in the coming years. 
Well, and one of the things that's really a shame about sort of the top of the market issues is, of course, those neighborhoods are very, the mo- they're the most convenient. They're the most convenient to transit. And also some of them are more walkable in terms of, you know, being able to walk to, you know, Poplar where there's businesses or so both of you, I guess, starting with you, Mari, are there, we could talk about, you know, public policy forever, but on the top of the market, are there things that government can do to try to forestall some of that loss of small A affordable in these increasingly desirable neighborhoods? Well, one of the things I was, I thought about when um, we were talking about that specific example in Binghampton is that, um, and, and a couple other issues that became kind of high profile is that We've engaged the National Fair Housing Alliance to work with us really on an analysis of housing rights in Memphis. And that's, you know, to help us figure out the effects on these rights. What what are we able to do legally? Um, what are some protections and policies that already exist and what what potentially could be developed? So that work is just getting started. And we're going to have, a you know, we've got the Fair Housing Alliance that's going to be working with some local stakeholder groups and partners to really get a lot of community input. But a lot of examples that occurred this year and related to that are, you know, just emphasized our need to really look at what we can do. Um, A lot came up about renters' rights. And so we wanted to take a look at what, you know, what is legally possible and what can we, you know, maybe expand to, to protect tenants like that a little bit more. I'd love to have you back on when that comes out. So Austin, anything else you can Think of the the top of the market that local government can do. Yeah, um, I, I think there's a lot that is is written and discussed about you know these cities that have seen top of market displacement for a while. So you know our Tennessee neighbor in Nashville has definitely uh, done some of this. My um, hometown of Atlanta has seen a lot of this. You know, also more famously nationally, like San Francisco, New York City, Washington D.C. Um, and so. My, but I, but I think the the Memphis case is going to be interesting because um, Memphis is not any of those cities, right? And and a lot of those cities don't um, don't have both of these things happening at the scale and at the size that Memphis is happening uh, here locally. And and I got I got to brag on um, HCD and 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 our city of Memphis for being as forward thinking and research driven as they are, because I think a lot of those other cities. You know, we have a unique opportunity here to because we're we're, we're seeing it and we and we know that it, the top of market is happening and we still have an opportunity to kind of get in front of it. And so, in tandem with um, with the fair housing and housing rights research, um, you know, the HCD is also working working with with Innovate and, and me as the research fellow to to look at how we can track at the property level this displacement from top of market and bottom of market, so we can begin to figure out what tools work because tools like you know, uh, Binghampton has started a community land trust, which is a great tool that that is a great top of market displacement, um, potentially looking at um, tax breaks for uh, older homeowners in certain neighborhoods could be a really good way to prevent um, displacement. Uh, but some of those things, you know, similar to the housing rights study, some of those things are, are legal, some of them aren't at the local level. So we're just figuring out which tools from other cities um, we, we can use and then also um, fighting off potential preemption from the state, because that's another thing we forget is in Nashville specifically, uh, a policy called inclusionary zoning, which is a way for local governments to uh, make sure that multifamily developers have a certain amount affordable, uh, that's preempted at the state level. So that tool belt, that tool in our tool belt is already off the table, right? And so how can we find these tools that work 
And then, but the first step, just like we're doing with the housing rights and similarly what we'll do with residential displacement is figuring out where it's at and what tool is going to work in what neighborhood. Because even within Memphis, uh, the land trust might work really well in Binghampton, but you know it might not work as well in a Whitehaven or a Fraser. And so how can we, um, like no other city in America, I want to make that really clear how lucky we are to have a city that's that's thinking ahead like this and being this proactive. Like no other city in America, we, we can begin to tailor our housing policy to the neighborhood level and to know where exactly we need what tool uh, so that we can ultimately create a better neighborhood and better city for all Memphians, not just those at certain income brackets. I agree with that. I feel like, you know, having talked to a lot of community development practitioners in other cities over the years, um, we haven't experienced a lot of those gentrification displacement issues in our neighborhoods. And um, I do think there's lessons we can learn from other cities, what's worked and what hasn't. And I agree, Austin, with your kudos for housing community development to trying to get out. I mean, it's hard to get ahead of the real estate market, which is like a fast moving train. But but being forward thinking enough to try to try to see what strategies make sense. So I completely agree with that, and uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity. I do feel like while you were talking, Austin, I wanted to ring the jargon bell a bunch. Uh, community land you should have you should have inclusionary yeah. zoning you were laying a lot of jargon on us, but it was so interesting. I didn't want to interrupt you. So um, so just. Just, I wanted to ring the bell on you, just so you know. I, I wish, I wish you could just, just follow me everywhere and just have the jargon bell all the time. I mean, that would be great. I, I'd love it because, because we're just like fish in water. You know, we just say it and we don't even think about it. I'm the worst. So, yeah. so, so last question, um, and I guess for you especially, Mari, what are some of the, the impacts that have come out of this? you know, first time report like new collaborations or uh, policy priorities or what are some of the things that have that have emerged from this that you're happy to see? Well, I think that a lot of the information from the report informed the housing response that we have undertaken around COVID-19. And it's I've been just amazed at how proactive, collaborative, I guess, the efforts have been. Um, people came together very quickly. And this is especially true, I think, around homelessness and around the eviction issue and just rent and mortgage assistance in general. But I mean, we had partnerships to form very, very quickly, which was, you know, very important, obviously. But to really develop some programs that have been incredibly effective, really critical in in solving some immediate issues um, and to, to reduce displacement and and keep people um, housed during this time. And what's we have, you know, so many resources coming into the community right now, which is great. Um, trying to figure out what those resources involve and how we can best implement them has been really important to consider. Um, and so that's why the data has been so important. But what's been one of the most exciting things to me um, out of these collaborative efforts is that, you know, we've developed solutions that solve immediate problems, but also we've, we're developing the systems and the infrastructure, I think, that really we intend to have long-lasting effects. So as we have more resources to come in, um, which of course there's never enough, but you know we have programs that we can use to deploy them, but you know we're creating hopefully the long-term infrastructure that gets to these issues, um, especially around you know keeping people housed. 
Well, and you're right. I mean, I had Webb on a couple weeks ago talking about their eviction, you know, MPI's eviction prevention program, which is extremely innovative. And I could see that as something that could continue on um, past COVID. But you actually make a good point, which is another good point, which is that probably with all this money coming in, the this affordable housing report actually gave you kind of a framework for um, deciding how, you know, in a hurry, how you wanted to deploy those resources. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was a really important tool that we had um, to, to review and and put these funds to the best use. Just, as I said before, it really just continued the conversation. And I think it made more people aware of these particular issues, both locally and, you know, at the places where our speakers were from. And um, the feedback that we got has been really great. And, you know, one of the, there's been blessings and curses, obviously, with the pandemic, but one of the, you know, the blessings has been the, the, the number of speakers that we were able to get, you know, and the quality of speakers and and partners that we were able to have participate because it was in a virtual environment and the number of attendees, you know, we would have been limited by size. Um, We would have had nowhere near that many. So the exposure that these issues got as a result of that has just been really tremendous, I think. The summit was unbelievable. I agree with you. I mean, it's just in terms of the caliber of the speakers and the discussions, that's been very interesting to me. Just, you know, the pivoting to virtual events in general have been constraining, but they also have broadened across the board, you know, arts and cultural activities, professional events really have broadened the audience and made it accessible for more people. So Austin, what about you? What are some, are there any additional sort of outcomes impacts you're particularly excited about that came out of the publication of the report? Yeah, well, we, we touched on this briefly earlier, but uh, but I think uh, as um, as Mari mentioned, you know, identifying that this this uh, specific um, specific focus on displacement and how how that lowercase a is losing the market. You know, we talked about it a lot today, um, but but I think we're we're really excited to to be involved in a national cohort uh, that's sponsored by the National Science Foundation um, that is helping researchers work more with the city governments. It's called Sturt Labs, and Memphis is one of uh, seven or eight cities I think in the entire country. That are involved, and, and so for me, what's really exciting about all of this, you know, the summit having almost a thousand participants from all over the world, you know, Memphis in the in the housing and neighborhood space is really uh, beginning to become a meaningful actor on the national scale. And I think, you know, Memphis as as our city, if we think about the entire country, I mean, there are certainly a lot more cities that are in Memphis's place than there are in in a San Francisco or a New York City. You know, those are very exceptional cities. And and I think the more and more we can get Memphis's story told to a national, if not an international audience, I think the better that will not only help us, uh, you know, move move our um, policies forward, but also cities like Memphis across the country, you know, thinking of like St. Louis and Louisville and, and Birmingham and, uh, you know, these Jackson, Mississippi, you know, these small to mid-sized cities uh, that aren't, you know, one of the five or 10 largest that, that um, their problems look a little different from those mega cities. And, and I think having research and data that speaks to um, what their dynamics look like and, and having conferences that, uh, that, you know, a national type caliber conference in Memphis that's accessible to, to those other cities, I think is another kind of unintended impact, you know, that wasn't obviously on the city of Memphis's goals <laughs> when they were doing it, but I think it's definitely been, um, been something that is going to benefit our city in the long run is to have, 
these other peer cities uh, going through some of the same issues and being able to talk to them and lean on that and and have that inform what, what we're doing in Memphis. Okay, great words to end on. I agree with all of that. Elevating Memphis's, um, you know, visibility, attracting more resources here. What's to, what's not to like about both of those things? So you've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I've been talking to Mari Albertson, who's the director of the deputy director of housing community development in the city and Austin Harrison, research fellow from Innovate Memphis. We've been talking about the state of Memphis housing, particular emphasis on affordable housing. For, so thank you guys both. And uh, you're, I want to have you both on again because it's been a great discussion. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to the second half of Memphis Metropolis, and I'm here with Charlie Santo, who's the Director of City and Regional Planning Department at University of Memphis and one of our regular informed commentators. Charlie, before we start talking about the topic at hand, which is really an additional discussion about the affordable housing report I talked about in the first half of the show, I know that you're working on establishing a PhD program at University of Memphis in the School of Urban Affairs and Public Policy, which has been in the works for a while, and I'm very excited about it. And so what's the latest on that? In the works for a while is putting it mildly. <laughs> so I'm being kind. <laughs> so I've been at the University of Memphis for, for 15 years. The very first committee I served on was a committee to create a PhD program in urban affairs. <laughs> so we are finally uh, at the starting line. Well, actually, the, the program will start next fall. Um, so we'll start enrolling students for our first cohort in the fall of 2021. We are actually currently in the middle of conducting interviews for the new faculty line. I'll be the director of the PhD program. So we're really excited about it. It's been a long time coming. There's a lot of interest in it because it's been a long time coming. A lot of people have had us uh, have heard us talk about it. So we feel like we've got a pretty good uh, pent up demand uh, for this program and we can hit the ground running in the fall. So, so remind me what the different disciplines are in School of Urban Affairs and Public Policy, and if this new program is going to draw from all of them. Yeah, so the, the new program, it's an interdisciplinary program and really focused on urban problem solving with an emphasis on community engagement. And it will draw from all the disciplines within the School of Urban Affairs and Public Policy. So that's city and regional planning, public and nonprofit administration, social work, and criminology, criminal justice. And then we also have participation from a few programs or departments outside of the school. So political science, sociology, and anthropology, all bringing that multidisciplinary perspective uh, to solving urban problems. That's great. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about it and meeting some of the students. So back to the show, I should say. So the first half of the program, I had Mari Albertson and Austin Harrison talking about um, the state of Memphis housing, uh, a report, a very readable and interesting report that um, was published in 
the fall. And I'm a little late having them on the show. I think I mentioned to them that the study comes up so much in other discussions about housing, it really made sense to go kind of back to the source. And um, anyway, that was a very interesting discussion. Uh, Part of it is sort of a jumping off point for talking about what's next now that we have the findings and especially in terms of what they can control, you know, Mars with the city and what can government do. So what are your thoughts about that? Uh, I, I thought it was a really fascinating conversation with Austin and Mari. And, you know, you did ask them a lot of uh, Mari in particular, what can government do about this particular problem? Um, and, you know, really good answers. But I, I think we can I think we also have to talk about and I can talk a little bit about a little bit more about what I think government can do to solve the problem. But I think we can first put some context around the issue and talk about what government has done that has actually contributed to the current affordable housing problem. And this is this is all federal level stuff. So this is not, you know, a critique of Memphis HCD. Um, but so so Austin talked about the difference between big A affordable housing versus little A affordable housing, with that the capital A being kind of official government programs. And there are a lot of things that have cut into the availability or the supply of, of both types of affordable housing. But really in the 90s which I still think of as, as recently, even though it's not really. Uh, in the 90s, federal policy really changed the, the way that we as a nation provide that capital A affordable housing. So with things like HOPE 6, which called for the demolition of a lot of public housing projects and, and replacing those with, with mixed rate or, or uh, market rate and, and mixed rate uh, housing options. And really the shift started even earlier than that in the 70s when we introduced rental vouchers. Right. So before that time, historical context, before that time, the standard approach to providing um, housing, affordable housing, was publicly owned housing projects. Right? These were apartment buildings that were designed for low income households, um, created in 1937 by the Wagner Public Housing Act. And really, basically, it's, you know, rather than renting from a, a private landlord, you rented a, a, an apartment unit in one of these buildings that was owned by the local government. Um, and in the in the early 90s, the, the federal government really shifted its philosophy away from providing housing for poor folks in these concentrated groupings altogether. Um, and at the time, a lot of these projects were really sort of run down. There was a lot of deferred maintenance, uh, in part because they were kind of set up to fail, which we can talk about later. But it was really the, the rents from tenants that were mainly funding the operations of public housing. And as the income mix of tenants got poorer and poorer, the amount of rent coming in went down um, and it became, it was no longer self-sufficient, right? So it now required additional subsidies from the federal government to maintain operations, to make capital improvements. And so the federal government started to shift away from project-based assistance for poor families and started promoting mixed income housing and the use of vouchers. In, in 1974, we created what we, what we call now Section 8 vouchers or housing choice vouchers. And that was partly about getting poor people out of these bad public housing projects and encouraging families to move to to safer neighborhoods, uh, greater economic opportunities. But it was also motivated by some other things like economic efficiency, right? The idea of kind of letting the private market deal with the problem by issuing housing rental vouchers. That's the more cost-effective way to subsidize housing than building new public housing. And then the other motivator, uh uh-oh, is that the jargon? Charlie, just um, explain how how a voucher works. Ah, 
Yes. Right. So rather than renting a unit in a building owned by the local government, uh, and even in that case, you're paying your rent is based on what your income is. So you're paying a percentage of your, of your income as your rent. So rather than the government owning the building that you're renting from, the government essentially is giving you a voucher that you then use as your rent and pay a, a private landlord. Right. So they're giving the, you're, you're you're renting now from a private landlord instead of the government, but the government is paying um, part of your rent to make up the difference between what you can pay and what the market rate is. And you can use it anywhere. I mean, you might be cost constrained because, you know, if it's a very expensive apartment, you might not be able to use the difference. You might not be able to pay the difference. But if you wanted to, you could move to East Memphis right. or, you know, you can use the voucher anywhere um, the, where you can afford the balance, the difference between what the government's paying and the, and the market rent. Just just to be clear for people about what how that program works. So I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah, no, 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 that's fine. I, and, that, and that's right. That's part of the rationale is that we're breaking up the concentration of poverty by putting all these poor folks in a, a public housing project and saying, well, you can go live in other neighborhoods that may, might be nicer, right? And give you additional opportunities. And so that was part of the motivation. And then the other part was re really there's, there's sort of the desire to spark new real estate development uh, where these old projects were, right? So with with Hope Six in the '90s and, and later Choice Neighborhoods, uh, which are programs that the idea was to tear down the old public housing projects, partner with private real estate developers to rebuild these mixed income developments. Um, so that happened in cities all across the country, and it happened all over Memphis, right? So there are no more public housing projects in Memphis. They've all been replaced by these Hope Six developments or Choice Neighborhood developments. And it's been good in terms of revitalization. The question about how good it has been for former public housing residents is kind of an open question, right? So the reason I bring this up is because when we're thinking about things that have affected um, the amount of affordable housing out there for people to, to choose from, are the shift from the federal government to, from providing housing uh, in projects to providing housing via vouchers is that as a nation, we've lost over 300,000 units of public housing. So we've sort of taken those things out of the housing stock. And yeah, we've we've replaced what the projects were with new developments, but it's never a one-to-one -one replacement rate with new affordable housing. So at the end of the day, we've taken a lot of affordable housing out of the pool. Uh, and by dismantling that safety net of public housing and replacing it with a system that kind of drives up real estate prices by, by revitalizing, revitalizing these neighborhoods, and and we and we've replaced it with a system of vouchers that just doesn't provide enough help for poor people because there aren't enough of them to go around. We're losing affordable housing units from a number which was which was never enough. It was ne we never remotely had enough units to house all the people who are eligible for it. Uh, so we didn't we we didn't have enough to start with, and now we're reducing the supply. Yeah, I mean, both from the reducing supply from the, from the pro the public sector side, and there's a bunch of stuff going on on the on the private sector side, reducing that small a uh, supply as well. So, Charlie, you were telling me before we started recording about the European approach, and I won't spend too much time on that, but I thought that was interesting. So, educate me a little about that. Yeah, so as I sort of alluded to uh, earlier. Our public housing approach was sort of set up to fail from the get-go. Um, 
And there's a, it doesn't have to be that way, right? So we can, there's a lot of um, potential solutions being discussed at the federal level now, now that we have a new administration, lots of folks in Congress, conversations about increasing the funding for vouchers. Uh, there's actually some conversations about uh, increasing the number of public housing units, right? For a long time, we've we've been demolishing public housing. There are some now calls for, for instituting new, public, building more public housing units. But the real problem when we're talking about building public housing units is that the, our, the U.S. version of public housing was designed to fail because it was so limited in scope, uh, with its focus on only low-income households being able to, to rent in the public housing units. Um, but that could have been different when it was set up, right? So in Europe, the, the public housing in Europe does not have a stigma associated with it. It's, it's referred to as social housing. Um, and it sounds like it's a different thing, but really it's not, right? The main difference between the European social housing model and public housing in the U.S. is who's allowed to live in it. Uh, when public housing was created in the U.S., as sort of this New Deal program, in order to get that, that Public Housing Act passed, there was a lot of opposition from the real estate industry that feared that public housing would compete with their private market offerings. Um, so to, to get it to pass, Congress, Congress limited eligible tenants to only the poorest Americans. So you had to, to be poor enough to qualify for public housing. Uh, that was not the original intent, right? The reformers that were pushing this were pushing for a broader model in which the government would occupy a, a non-commercial sector in the housing market. And that's the way it works in, in the European model. Um, so social housing in Europe is, is built on government-owned land. And sometimes a private entity owns and operates the housing units, but it's under public oversight. Uh, and it's placed in, in desirable areas. Uh, it's you know designed with architectural standards, livability standards, so that it's appealing to people across income spectrums. And people across income spectrums can occupy it. Uh, you don't have to be among the poorest to, to live in these social housing options. Well, isn't that part of what Hope Six and Choice Neighborhoods try to accomplish? Because in those developments, the public housing units are income restricted, but all of those developments have have some market rate, and it's th those communities are designed to attract a, a wider variety of income and. Is it stigma that is keeping, and they're in great locations, a lot of them, they're close to transit, close to downtown. Um, a lot of them are brand new and very attractive here in Memphis, in my opinion. So so is it stigma or, or is there other reasons why um, that goal hasn't been reached or has it? I mean, there is the the, the similarity in uh, philosophy there is that, you know, mixing of income, right? Um, and the Hope Six approaches, the Choice Neighborhood approaches, have subsidized units near market rate units. But the difference in the European model is the mechanism by which the public housing is um, operated and maintained in terms of the, the funding source, right? So you have one apartment building um, that is designed to appeal to a broad range of people. Uh, middle class folks choose to live there. And they pay market rents, and that market rent that they pay subsidizes the cheaper rents reserved for low-income occupants. So it's not like our public housing model that was set up where, you know, we're, we have these massive buildings and we need to operate them and maintain them and keep them up. Uh, and we're trying to do that with 
rent that is 30% of a low-income family's household's uh, income, right? So there's not enough rent coming in to make these places work. And in the European model, you have the rent coming in from the higher income households and that's subsidizing, making the project work. Um, so, the, I mean, the, the, the bottom line idea is that the decision there is that housing is a human right, that it's so important that it shouldn't be left up to the free market. Um, so there's government intervention into it. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. And we're talking to Charlie Santo from University of Memphis about all things affordable housing. So Charlie, um, you know, we've acknowledged that, you know, the number of units, both big A and low A, um, are going are, are going away here and for a variety of reasons. And what are some what are some local um, innovations or solutions that you think we can put into place that um, can help address that? Well, I mean, I, so again, I think a lot of the, the big improvements are going to have to be federal level policy, putting more money into the uh, things like the National Housing Trust Fund um, and, and supporting more vouchers and possibly building more public housing. But one thing that that Austin talked about or mentioned sort of in passing was the idea of community land trusts. Um, and we do have, we're starting to see some of that in Memphis. Binghampton is, is uh, one place where there's a community land trust that's happening. Um, and so I thought I could unring the jargon bell on this one and sort of explain what the community land trust is. Yeah, do that because I'm. I, I want to do a show on that, but definitely, um, let's talk briefly about what those are. Sure. Yeah. So it, it's kind of sim- it's kind of simple. Um, so when there's a community land trust, there's basically there's a nonprofit organization, a community based organization, that is trying to ensure community stewardship of some land. Uh, typically, that nonprofit entity will acquire a parcel of land uh, or multiple parcels of land. Usually they are contiguous, so you've got a, you know, a neighborhood that all the property in that neighborhood is owned by a community land trust. They can be scattered site as well. Um, but the nonprofit then builds houses on those parcels of land, and they sell it to people that meet certain requirements. Um, but the nonprofit retains ownership of the land, right? So that's the trust. The, the land is held in trust by the nonprofit. Um, so with the nonprofit owning the land and selling the house, it, it keeps the cost down because now the person that's buying into it doesn't have to pay the, the price of the land itself. Uh, and they also put some covenants on the resale of the property so it retains its affordability over time, right? So if I buy a house that's part of a land trust, I'm just buying the house, I'm not buying the land. Uh, and if the property value goes up over time, I can't resell it for a huge profit. I can resell it for you know maybe an increase of 10% in value over time so it, it, it maintains affordability of that of those homes over time. Yeah, I've got some I've got some thoughts about community land trusts. Um, I'm super excited about um, what they're doing in Binghampton and want to get them on the show. I've got I'm a little bit skeptical about the model here for a variety of reasons. Um, so look forward to sort of digging. Not to be negative, but look sort of sort of digging in on that a little more. Um, you can come back after that, and we can talk about it. So yeah. the um, but I know one thing we wanted to talk about. It's a little bit 
of a digression, but um, I really think it's worth talking about today. And that is the um, this article in the paper about this company called Divi that is essentially doing, a, a, it's a national company that's doing, does rent to own. It's a little bit of a different model. They, um, people apply to Divi and Divi determines how much they can afford. They select a house. Divi buys the house for them. And then, you know, they pay rent to Divi. And then, a you know, a piece of their rent goes to a down payment. And sounds great. But um, I know that, um, you know, there's some concerns about it. So, so let me know what you think about that. Yeah, I mean... They, it sounds like they might be on the up and up and I don't really know, you know, I haven't had any contact with any of the folks involved in this and, and Divi, but it just, it makes me think of there's a, there's a broader context issue that's, that's happening and that's the, the, the lease to purchase or lease to own um, approach. Uh, so when we think about things, affordable housing units being taken out of the market or taken out of the pool and limiting the number of, of those available, you know, we saw after the after the recession during the recovery uh an increase in the number of mortgages that are going to non-owner owner occupied so so people buying properties taking out a mortgage or property they're not going to live in that they're going to they're, they're going to lease they're going to rent out uh, and so there's an increase in rental costs overall associated with that and one of the things that we're seeing is and we can maybe you know airbnb is another issue to talk about maybe on another time taking those homes uh, out of the market. Um, but worse than that is, is, is seeing large number of properties being bought out and then rented under this guise of a lease to own scenario. And there's a, a particularly egregious form of this called land installment contract. Well, it's essentially what happens is that the buyer is, the person that thinks they're buying a home uh, is making payments over a period of time, usually 30 years, uh, and the seller is is at the end of that going to convey legal title of the home when the final purchase has been paid, right? So you think you're paying rent towards the purchase of this home, but if the buyer defaults at any time, or if the if the if you don't pay your rent uh, on time one month, you know that can that contract can be canceled uh, and you lose everything that you put into it. You don't get anything back. So you're paying a deposit up front. You're making these monthly payments. You're making improvements to the property as if you own it, right? Like I make improvements to my property, even though I'm paying my mortgage to the bank. And so when when, when the plumbing breaks, you can't really call the landlord to fix it, uh, which is one of the benefits of renting. But the way these things are set up, there's no uh, inspections ahead of time like you would have when you're buying a home. Um, there's, you know, there might be liens on the on the on the property that are not disclosed ahead of time like you would if you were buying the home. And traditionally, these kind of lease to own things have been kind of the little guy investors with maybe one or two of these. But following that foreclosure crisis, we're seeing large companies with private equity buying large numbers of these things. And so in Memphis, there's a company called Gold Star Homes that owns 169 properties. Um, many of these, many of them seem to be working through this lease purchase deal. And I've seen contracts, um, one really egregious one where the, the tenant slash buyer was making these monthly uh, lease to purchase payments, but buried in the contract was a clause that 
the amount of that monthly payment that was going toward the purchase of the home was $1 a month. And this person had did not realize that. They thought that, you know, I'm making payments of $500 a month. That's going to the purchase of the home. Uh, at the end of this period of time, I'll, I'll own the home. But only a dollar a month is going toward the purchase of the home. At the end of the contract, they had to come up with $35,000. Or they're just out and they rinse and repeat and bring somebody else in. That's just predatory. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I am not saying that, that Divi is doing exactly that. but it, it, it belongs to this world of concerns, right? Um, you know, if you got to look at what percentage of people that get into these things actually at the end of it own, end up owning the home. And it seems to be a very small percent. So, but so we're running, we're running out of time. But one thing we didn't talk about, uh, but I want to do a whole separate show on this is all of the, you know, this big construction boom we're having sort of in Center City. Midtown in particular, but Midtown, the downtown area, you know, there's apartment buildings going up all over. Um, even during the pandemic, the construction has not really sold. Within, I would say, I can probably, from my house, I can probably see half a dozen new. If I got up on the roof, I could see a half dozen new multifamily developments. So, and of course, a lot, of course, generally speaking, I'm unlike some people, happy to see them. But a lot of them are have affordable units because they're getting incentives. And for sure, they are making this neighborhood less affordable overall. Uh, so I want to do a whole show on that, you know, why these are happening now and the potential impact. And um, so once I get all that together, I want you to come back on and we can, we can dissect. Yeah. I mean, I would love to do that. I, I you know, I always do a, a tour uh, for our new students at the beginning of the year. And I used to try to track all these new developments on my own Google map. Uh, there are just too many of them now to keep track of. But for our listeners, if you want to get a, a sense of where these developments are happening, uh, the Memphis Business Journal has this interactive map um, called the, the Memphis Crane Watch. Um, and you can you can filter it by multifamily or by mixed uh, mixed use properties, and you can see where they're happening. And it's it's sort of downtown, and then following out the the sort of the Poplar Avenue co uh, cone of prosperity. Um, yep. So interesting to, to, to track that. Okay, well we'll have to leave it there, but we'll definitely talk about that sometime soon. So. Charlie, thanks as always for coming on Memphis Metropolis, and I look forward to talking to you soon. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy. Thank you.